0: Hello and welcome to today's uh, podcast. Uh, it's part of the podcast series uh, uh, Beyond the Divide of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Uh, here in Cyprus, I'm the head of the office. My name is Hubert Faustmann. Today's podcast is a joint podcast with one of our favorite partners, Project Phoenix. In a second, uh, my co-host, Sandila, Sandhila, uh, will tell you a bit more about the uh, Project Phoenix. Let me just tell you. Today is part of a podcast series on Migration 2.0. It's the second episode uh, with the title The Impact of COVID 19 on Migrants and International Students in the North of the Island. But, uh, Rishabh, maybe you'll take over, introduce yourself, say a bit about Project Phoenix, uh, and then I'll continue.
1: Thank you, Hubert. Um, so, Project Phoenix is a young European NGO and social enterprise that's based in Cyprus, and we work towards systems change. Uh, in the field of migrant inclusion. Uh, together with uh, the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, we've been working on this podcast, and in this series, we hope to explore issues related to migration through multiple lenses. Uh, and the hope is that by mi- amplifying migrant voices and shedding light on migration issues, uh, we can promote inclusion, highlight the diversity of migrant experiences, uh, and humanize migrants and refugees, especially at a time when this is difficult uh, in Cyprus and the broader uh, Mediterranean.
0: Thank, thank you, Rishab. I should add that he's also the co-founder and head of the Project Phoenix in Cyprus. What are we dealing with today? Today, we are going to discuss the outcomes of a survey that was completed both by us, the Ebert Foundation and Project Phoenix, and our partner, Voice, which is an international student representative body in the north of the divided island of Cyprus. And This survey tries to understand the impacts of COVID-19 on migrants and international students who study in the internationally not recognized Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus and therefore complements a survey uh, that was conducted in the south, in the Republic of Cyprus. Let me introduce you our guest today. This is Samuel Akoni. He's the head of VOICE and uh, the research team uh, that conducted the research. He's also a PhD student at the Eastern Mediterranean University in Famagusta and the lead author of the survey report on the north of the
2: island. Hello, Samuel. Yes. Hi, Hubert and Herschel. Thank you so much for having me this morning.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Maybe a few words to the listeners who are not that familiar with the Cyprus context. So we have the background information and then go into your project. Cyprus is a divided island since 1974, uh, a Greek coup. The target against the government of the Republic of Cyprus was answered with a Turkish intervention that resulted in the physical division of the island. The Greek Cypriots were expelled from the north and are living now in the south of the island in the internationally recognized Republic of Cyprus. And in the north, the Turkish Cypriots settled and uh, they declared themselves independent in 1983, call itself the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, but no other state but Turkey has recognized this entity. And this obviously brings with it, to come to our topic today, special problems. Being a migrant or being a student in an internationally not recognized state will play a specific role and is one of the differences that marks the fate of migrants and students on both sides of the divide. So in this context, Samuel, again, a warm welcome. And let's focus on the survey and its results. Let's talk a bit about the methodology. What was the goal of the survey? How did you conduct it? And did you come across any difficulties during your research?
2: So the primary objective of the survey was considering the impacts that um, the pandemic is having, and again, like Hubert just said, the peculiarities of the northern part of Cyprus, um, the unrecognized entity at all. What has what have been the ramifications of that for um, non locals? So that's non-Turkish Cypriots residing in. The northern part of Cyprus. So that was essentially the objective of the study. Of the survey was to identify the prevailing trends as a result of the pandemic in the local community, as it relates to foreigners, specifically migrants and international students.
0: Okay, uh, how how did you go about conducting the survey? And as I said, were there any difficulties when you were doing it?
2: Um, not really, because fortunately we have. Um, Because, again, Voice as an organisation has been operating now for about three years. So during that time, we've taken great care and have been relatively successful um, in establishing a great online um, platform for ourselves in terms of engagements with students. And not even just, and interestingly enough, despite the fact that we're a student organisation, Um, our online interactions actually cut across both students and migrants in general for reasons that I'll actually discuss when we're discussing the results of the survey itself proper. But based on that, um, so despite the limitations that the pandemic resulted in, in terms of physical interactions and conducting a survey, um, uh, or conducting the general survey with face-to-face interactions with respondents, um, we decided to move the survey online. And despite that, we were still able to reach a reasonable amount of respondents, despite the fact that the survey was conducted online. So there wasn't um, a lot of difficulty in doing that. Granted, if we had been allowed to do it in person, we would likely have gotten a larger sample size. But given the restrictions, and like I said, the fact that we do already have um, a credible enough online presence, um, conducting the survey online did not really result in any particularly worrisome limitations in terms of reach.
1: Okay, thanks, Samuel. Um, Can you perhaps provide a profile in terms of demographics of the people who participated in the survey? And maybe this would be a good time to also talk about the profile of different international students in the North generally.
2: Um, So basically, like I said, because we're primarily a student-led organisation and because we're conducting this survey online, it was... You know, inherently difficult to, you know, how do I say, ensure that the sample followed a particular format in terms of demographic representation. So, putting it online essentially meant that um, we couldn't, you know, exactly determine who and who would see the survey one and then take the time to fill it in. But, based off that, and for that reason, um, the majority of the respondents to the survey were students, international students. In addition to that, most of the students were mostly African students. That was the there was a noticeable gap between the no, number of African respondents or student respondents to the survey and non-Africans, um, followed by um, those of who identify as Arab, and then you know we had smaller representatives, um, representation rather, for the others. Age again because you know primarily students as well. Um, we had a, a lot of young people, actually, so the range was mostly uh, from about 18 upwards to the late 20s. There were a few above, above that, but not relatively insignificant when compared to those that were below that age group or, you know, young people in general.
0: Hey, what about um, the main and most important findings in terms of access to COVID-19 information?
2: Yes, um, and this is what I wanted to highlight uh, when I was talking about our online presence. Part of the reason, because um, our online presence actually really ballooned as a result of the pandemic. I know it's, um, for example, a number of followers on Instagram and Facebook increased sizably by about 30, 40 percent in the past year, actually, because of the pandemic. Because one of the things that happened during the pandemic at the start, um, there was... Very little attention being paid on the part of the local authorities, that is, to ensure or taking special attention, or paying special attention rather, to ensuring access to information for non-locals. So that's essentially non-Turkish speakers because um, information relating to the pandemic was initially been released solely in Turkish. So one of the things that we as an organization had to do at the beginning was um, start translating these things. So we had to start doing, as at the same time as the local authorities were doing daily updates in regards to the pandemic, we had to be following them straight in line, actually, right. We had to stay right at their toes. So as soon as they released a new piece of information, again, in Turkish, we, have, we had to set up a translation team at the time even that would, you know, quickly take the information, translate it into English. I know sometimes, initially we tried to diversify, but obviously that became more difficult to practice. But we take it on um, the Turkish documents or statement, whatever it was, translated into... I remember initially we were doing English, Persian, and Arabic. But eventually, because again, we had to be doing this every day, so it became a bit burdensome. So we um, eventually decided, and again, considering the fact that most um, migrants... In the North, typically do speak English, at least a second or third language. Um, so we just eventually started focusing on that. But then that was emblematic of a wider trend whereby um, the primary sources of information were NGOs such as ourselves, um, being voice, um, but also other NGOs, migrant focused NGOs in the North, like the Refugee Rights Association, for example, and uh, social media primarily. So there was, um, and this is also reflected in the results of the survey, whereby um, most of the respondents indicated that their primary sources of information um, as it relates to the pandemic, et cetera, were from non-official, in quotes, co- sources. Uh,
1: thanks, Samuel, for the information on the, on the access to COVID uh, and, you know, what students went through over the last year. Uh, we also heard that international students in the north were affected by the slowing down of, of government offices and bureaucracy. Uh, and this particularly affected their travel uh, and residence permit applications. Uh, we did have a chance to speak to a Nigerian student um, who recently moved uh, to the North. Um, and this is what he had to say.
3: Okay, so when I came into the country, I was given like um uh, three months. Uh, No, sorry, 90 days. Yeah, so after the 90 days expired, uh, we were already in lockdown because I came around February 2020, so I couldn't do anything about it. So I think the government was a little bit kind enough to give us uh, some, you know, just be a a little bit lenient with it. So they gave us like a free link to fill out uh, the forms. The site was a bit crazy. So I had to basically stay illegal for a while, you know. I had to basically stay without a permit for, I think, um, till after COVID. So um, I had problems with it, but it was fine. Yeah, I think it comes with the the situation at hand. Well, I I had to do it after the lockdown. So I did my permits for last year, this year, and also this year. So I did two permits at once.
1: So we just heard what a student from Nigeria just said about the difficulties faced um, in renewing his residence permits. Samuel, what did the survey have to say about what students went through uh, in dealing with authorities um, and legal issues over the last year?
2: Um, as could be expected, you know, with the lockdowns especially, and even slightly after the lockdowns, because the opening up, as I were, occurred in tranches and relatively slowly. But the uh, um, a significant number of respondents reported that they did have trouble um, in regards to renewing or even applying for their residence permits and you know, can't travel without a permit. So that affected their travel times, even after we opened up for about a month or two. Um, and the primary reason for that is as a cause of how the residency permits system here is structured, whereby it happens online, so there's that part, and that you would think that that would make it, you know, entirely easy given the pandemic, because it was online prior to the pandemic in the first place. But where the difficulty arose is the fact that this fact that you have to apply and you get your permit online. In between that, as part of the process, every year when renewing your permits, you have to do um, a blood test. So you have to do that every year. So you can't actually progress, and that's about. I think the first step, actually, I think, in the permit renewal or application process is the blood test. So you could go online, you could pay into the online system, but then um, during the lockdowns, because access to hospitals especially was restricted to emergency cases and, you know, essential, exactly was essential medical attention of which um, getting a blood test done for renewing your permits did not really. And I think the system was even down for a bit. They weren't... Um, because the, you don't go to a random hospital to get that done. Um, a laboratory is assigned to you by the system. So that wasn't working as well, I guess, because they were trying to stop people from going out to do that. So there was a bit of a delay that occurred with that. And this was um, the, the same for most non-essential government services at the time. So um, as for that reason, of, it was reflect it's reflected in the data as well, because the respondents did indicate that there were limitations in their access as a result of the pandemic.
0: People globally, but also of course in the North, suffered from the from the economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis. For a lot of people, income went down and living standards went down. Do you have any information how um, students' financial situations in the North were affected by the COVID crisis?
2: Um, yes, we do, actually. Um, so. There's two primary considerations here. On the one hand, because we're dealing with a sample pool that's made up mostly of students, and for that reason, the fewer number of them are employed. So there's that on the one hand. But then, secondly, also because we're dealing with a sample pool that's made up primarily of students, the um, primary means in terms of economic um, being remaining economically fluid. The primary means of obtaining funds, et cetera, is through remunerations from their parents or sponsors, whatever the case may be, outside of the island. So the pandemic restrictions were limited, were um, limiting in terms of economic livelihoods and such for those in those two ways. For those that were even employed, the industries where students tend to be employed were parts of those that were hard hit by the pandemic. Um, by the restrictions as a result of the pandemic, rather, such as the closures of restaurants, um, cafes, casinos, hotels, et cetera, which is those typically the areas where you would find students working, because, again, students can only work part-time. So those are the type of places that um, would typically offer part-time employment that would be attractive to students. So that was one thing that happened. Then, on the other hand, for those that um, relied on remunerations from abroad, there was also the problem of the closures of banks, Etc. cetera. So services such as Western Union, MoneyGram, et cetera, you couldn't really access those if that was the primary way which you would typically get money because the banks weren't working for the majority of the lockdown, pretty much the whole time before the gradual opening. Um, and for that reason, Western Union wasn't working, MoneyGram wasn't working. So it, there was a significant economic impact for sizable amounts of students.
1: Thanks, Samuel. Um, I can imagine that the you know the the loss of employment, financial difficulties, uh, delays in in residence permits, and you know even just the inability to go out and attend classes and meet other students must have had a real impact uh, on the mental health of um, the students in the north over the last couple of months. Uh, in fact, we did have a chance to talk to a, a student from Nigeria who recently moved to the north. Uh, and let's hear what he has to say. Um,
3: so far, it's been—I um, have to say—it's been psychologically draining, um, emotionally torturing, and um, it's been—it's been, it's been just—it's uh, been stressful. And um, no matter how you put it, yeah, you know, you can't really quantify how you're feeling words. But what, um, not being able to go out, you know, not being able to—people that actually, some people hoped on working for summer during summer period. to get some money it wasn't possible because of covid so uh, not being able to even uh, do some basic things and even right now we can't even go out to western union to get money if you if money is being sent to you from home so it's um i think if you have anyone in north cyprus you should reach out to them and you know try to know how they're doing generally yeah they um most schools try to give out um incentives and food and stuff but Not it doesn't get. I don't think it's well circulated because a lot of people don't. A lot of students don't know about it, so they don't get this help and it needed. And believe me, people really, really do need it.
1: Um. So there you have it. Definitely a huge impact on people's mental health, um, like it was all over the world. But was there anything in the survey that you found that you know could point us to what exactly people are going through uh, in the north over the last couple of months?
2: Um, yes. So the majority of respondents did indicate that the pandemic, as could be expected, had had a negative impact on the mental health. So there's really no surprise there. And like Kershap, graciously, graciously mentioned, that is also as a result of you know, the social damage of the pandemic restrictions, whereby um, the classes moved online. So And also because everyone was expected to be isolating in the first place there was very limited social interaction. I mean, you know, people try to supplement that with online um, relations, you know, through Zoom or Google Meets, whatever, FaceTime, to try and remain socially active, but it's not really the same. And also being confined in small places definitely would have impacted that as well. But what I'm, um, as part of it, I guess this contributes to the same thing, was another thing that the survey found was Respondents who lived with, there was a correlation between the amount of people that the respondents shared a residence with and the impact on their mental health, whereby those that um, lived with two or more people reported a lesser adverse impact on their mental health than those that lived alone, for example. And you can see that the more number of people that the individuals are surrounded by, the less adverse impact on the mental health there was. So you can see that, um, at least in the conclusion, that the social impact of the pandemic was, of, of the restrictions, more specifically, was definitely significant. It's something that's not um, usually overlooked because you know the assumption being that since everything moved online, you could just continue business as usual, you could still interact. But I'm guessing, oh, and the data does support that, I'm guessing that um, the lack of physical dimensions to the interactions was equally damaging. And also, and this is just a quick side note, the, um, the pandemic did appear to have a significantly more negative, not too significant, but there was a difference, a more negative impact on the mental health of female respondents as opposed to male respondents. So that was also something interesting that we saw.
1: Very interesting. Sorry, um, I know you guys at Voice are doing um, things to actually help people with their mental health. Do you want to talk a little bit about your efforts you've made recently? Um,
2: Yes. So during the pandemic, again, thank God for social media. So one thing we did try to do was, you know, in in addition to, but also separate from the daily updates that we still do today as well, because you know we're still ongoing and um, we're back in phase two of lockdown-ish at this point. Um, we're trying, in addition to the updates, we try to, you know, have activities running. So minor question and answer sessions or Instagram lives, just things that we try as much as best as possible to replicate, um, you know, physical social activities. We try to do the light space. And then there was a great initiative that was started by our mental health community a few weeks ago. Um, it's called the Online Safe Space. So recognizing that, yes, there's an ongoing negative impact on the mental health of international students as a result of the pandemic-related measures, um, the members of our mental health community have set up this whole thing whereby if you just need to talk, you know, it's judgment-free, it's, that's why it's called the Safe Space. It's literally just a safe space for those that are willing to you know, go to, and this is online as well, of course, and go to and just essentially just talk. If you just need someone to talk to, um I don't want to call it therapy because it's not really therapy, but, you know, just providing people with the opportunity to vent with the expectation that, you know, just knowing that you can have a place where you can go to offload would help ease the burden in a way.
0: Let's talk about racism and discrimination a bit. I mean, uh, the global pandemic, clearly led to a rise of xenophobic reactions, particularly by authorities uh, globally. Did you have similar experiences also in regard to treatment of students by locals or the authorities in the North?
2: Um, Yes. Unfortunately, we didn't really, um, because of the, again, because of the nature, specifically the fact that it was online, we couldn't really isolate the details of those experiences but a few, um, a number of respondents did indicate that they felt that they had been discriminated against in certain ways as a result of their race um, during the pandemic. So um, this is off the top of my head, because this is one instance that I do sort of remember. But even the mandates on the wearing of masks, for example, there were reports at some point that uh, while it was scantily implemented in regards to locals, um, foreigners, you know, not just Black people, but also Arabs, uh, etc., uh, felt that they were being inordinately targeted for not following the rules or not being as specific with the rules, even when sometimes this was might have been purely based on ignorance. But, you know, there was a more hand, hard handed approach on the part uh, in terms of an enforcement on the part of the authorities. And a lot of them felt that this had something to do with their race.
1: Thank you for that input, Samuel. I guess my last question—I think this is more of a personal uh, question for you as well, because you know you are a PhD candidate and a teacher yourself uh, at at the Eastern Mediterranean University. Uh, and we did have a chance to talk to Umaima Jundi, one of your colleagues um, from Syria, who's a student of psychology in the north, um, and she talked about her experience as a student and how life changed so drastically over the last year. Let's listen to what Omama has to say. Uh,
4: because I'm a psychology student, so all my studies are theoretical mostly. Um, so it, it was kind of easy, but um, it, the university took a bit of time to adjust to the whole online situation. So it was very confusing at the beginning and um, I lost a lot of grades due to the threat like to be online and I didn't understand most of the stuff. It was a very difficult period because the transition, it, uh, it took time. And at the same time, it's like it happened uh, all of a sudden. Like we weren't expecting it to happen. So it was kind of difficult. We got used to the system, but uh, I still prefer it to be face to face because uh, communication wise, um, it's very it's very limited. And um, sadly, they're making the exams very difficult because, you know, since it's online, it's easier to cheat and stuff. So the people who are actually studying, um, it's very difficult for them. They're, uh, they're asking uh, very difficult questions.
1: Uh, Samuel, Amirma uh, brought up some interesting points there. How difficult or how different has the student experience been uh, in the last year? Uh, I imagine you came Uh, to study in the North a couple of years ago. You went through a couple of years of of normalcy, if we can call it that. And then suddenly you've had this crazy last year where everything has been flipped on its head. You're teaching classes online. You're you're working on your research online. Can you talk a little bit more about what the average student has had to go through in the last year uh, and what what are things looking like going forward? I can actually speak um, to both
2: because I do have friends that are also, you know, still taking classes, et cetera, and this is happening online. So I've, I do have the benefits of being able to speak of as someone that's teaching, but also based on secondhand information, I can also speak to the experiences of those that are being taught. And though, to put it simply, it's, it's hard. I don't, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. Um, from, on my end as uh, an instructor, one problem that I would say that is sort of different um, the difference between physical and online education, I would think, is the fact that um, it's very difficult to engage. You know because of the lack of a physical dimension to it, you know we're just talking at a screen for hours on end, you know um, sometimes you ask you know, does anybody have any questions. People just you know they're just not as enthused about the experience, as opposed to when classes were happening face-to-face. And it's even more difficult now to encourage that enthusiasm because, you know, a lot of my classes, is something that happens, you know, cameras aren't even on, and everyone's muted, obviously, to avoid interruption. So you're not even sure if someone's there. You could call their name like four or five times. You know, you don't know. And you can't really blame the students because this is new. It's new for everyone, actually. So this it's been a learning curve for all of us over the past. This would be the third semester now that's happening online, and um, if we're being honest, we don't know how much longer this is going to happen. So I guess we could say um, on one, uh, attention. It's very difficult to pay attention to a voice on the screen that's just basically giving a very educated monologue and, you know, so uh, due to the lack of engagement. So there's two sides to that. And then on the student part, I guess the one complaint is, and this relates to the first thing that I said as well, is um, a lot of them have reported that they're finding it difficult to pay attention because, you know, it's rather, I don't want to use the word dull, but for lack of a better word, I use the word dough, regardless of how entertaining you try to make it, all of this is still happening on one screen. And um there's no and the restrictions itself are impacting that because essentially that becomes all that you do. So you wake up in the morning, let's assume you have four or five hours of classes, you probably have breakfast, then you go sit at your computer and you're there for four to five hours. But then even to relax, you'd probably be relaxing in front of your computer. So then it becomes rather monotonous. So I guess that kind of contributes to the attention thing because I feel like after staring at the screen excessively for two to three months, eventually it just becomes tiresome. So I'd say um, the quality of education has definitely taken a hit. But um, there is a glimmer of hope in the sense that Like I said, it's been a learning curve. So each subsequent experience is getting better because on our part as educators, we also have to adapt our methods of teaching, et cetera, to cater for this new environment, if we could call it that, the online environment. And so this is a continuous ongoing process. So I'm hopeful that even if the pandemic does persist, um, eventually we get to a place where we've come to a new era of teaching that is more um, tailored or structured in a way that is complementary with the online environment. Of, um, one thing I'm trying to do as well is I'm trying to focus less on teaching and switch my class models, whereby it's less me talking in a formal sense and us having a formal, um, an interactive or two-way conversation between myself and my students. Because I think. If we're going to be talking without you seeing me in person and I can't even use visual aids, like drawing a nice concept tree on a blackboard, PowerPoints don't really capture that same essence. Um, I'm being hopeful that at least if you've read the material before the class, we can actually just have a conversation whereby it's not just me explaining something and asking you if you have questions. But perhaps, and this is one thing I'm trying as well, I hope it works, where I want the class structure to be presentation based. So the students have to give me presentations, and then you know I help them point out the holes in their logic, and then they can retort, and then we use that as a basis for the conversations that I mentioned. So just to kind of summarize everything I just said, yes, education has definitely taken a hit as a result of the pandemic, but you know there's an active efforts on showing up
1: the pitfalls of that. Um, Samuel, thank you for your insights so far. Uh, just moving forward, we're currently working on the actual survey report, which should be out in the next fortnight or so. Um, based on that, can you give us any sort of recommendations or predictions of what you think is going to happen uh, going forward as the pandemic drags along? What's the situation with vaccinations in the north? How, how long before you know things start going back to normal?
2: I guess the great starting point would be um, informing you that the Minister of Education, I think this was maybe two weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, said that we are not returning to -to face-to-face classes until all um, education-related personnel have been successfully vaccinated. So in terms of the future, I guess it would be safe to say that we're not going back to the classrooms anytime soon. At least until the vaccinations have been done to a considerable degree. And another thing that would that we need to account for is um, a re- relatively recent development. So, for since the pandemic started till about now, there haven't been any local cases um, concerning international students. So, we've been pretty successful as a community in that regard. Um, the spread was non-existent. But there was something that happened. Um, this was, I think, about three days ago, where in a student dormitory in Nicosia, actually the north side of Nicosia, um, there were 27 cases in one day, just, just like that. So I'm guessing um, an affected person got into the dormitory and then, you know, it just spread like wildfire. And then, so that happening, um, and then the local reaction to it was a bit questionable in the sense that, you know, and there, Personally, and again, this is an entirely personal observation, but there were some racial undertones in it because the students that were um, tested that tested positive were all African. So there was this whole thing about them not um, paying attention to the restrictions, blah 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 blah. And then you know there was a retort on the side of international students whereby there's a whole thing happening on Facebook right now actually, where people are arguing that okay, but this whole time no international students got the virus and then suddenly more people that live in a confined space got it. Does it not stand to reason that it was one person that went in there and then blah, 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 it's just turning into a whole thing. But um, saying all this to um, lay the groundwork for what I'm about to say next is that um, this is one thing that us as an organisation are currently trying to deal with vis-a-vis the government, whereby despite the announcements, and some batches of vaccines did already arrive, from since about a month ago even, and vaccinations did start. But at no point has there been any reference to a vaccination plan for international students specifically, but also um, foreigners in general. Literally nothing has been said about that. So that's something that we're problematizing at the moment and you know we're trying to essentially lobby and pressure the authorities into providing a concrete answer to that because you know it's important so going forward um I'm I'm really not sure there's too many chips in the air because we don't know um what the total number of vaccines that they plan to acquire is will it be enough for an equitable distribution even in the case that if the distribution will not be equitable what is the plan for the distribution etc there's a lot of questions that we simply do not have the answers to at this point. But um, a glimmer of hope is the fact that um, the northern side has been relatively successful in keeping the pandemic under control because for a while we had zero cases. Then what happened was they opened up the airports and then you know, sporadically, they' asking people to isolate. but I don't know, maybe it's due to the crossings from the south, so there's uh, difficulty keeping track of people not coming through the airports. I'm not really sure I can't speak on what it is. But um, that's typically when we see a rise in cases such as now, but then if they're going to follow their previous patterns, then they'll probably close down again, get it under control and likely still open back up. But the point I'm trying to make is um, I'm not too concerned because there's been relative success in containing it so far based on historical experiences, present circumstances notwithstanding, of course. Um, So I guess looking to the future, we'll probably see a decline in negative trends. And also due to our previous, um, not just ours actually, but, you know, concerted lobbying efforts um, with the first lockdown and the immediate aftermath of that, on various subjects actually, to way too many to even delve into right now. um, The governments, and not just the government, but even some local circles are paying greater attention and becoming more responsive So the specific needs and demands to press, et cetera, as it relates to migrants and international students. So that's something on a positive note. So I'm not really too concerned about the future at this point.
0: Thank you so much, Samuel. Ending on a positive note, always good. Feel good factor at the end on a serious <laughs> issue. Um, so this was our second of 12 podcasts designed to deal with the issue of migrants in Cyprus throughout The year, big thank you to Samuel Acconi, the head of voice research team, who is also a PhD student at the EMU in Famagusta and was the lead author and is the lead author of the survey report on the North. Thanks so much. That was most interesting. So if you enjoyed um, that podcast, you can find that podcast on our website, fscyprus.org, but also on all leading podcast podcasts platforms. Um, A big thank you from my side also to Richard, my co-host. I don't know, Richard, if you want to have a a few final words, but from my side, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and hope you're interested in other podcasts, either of that series, but also other podcasts on Cypress, which you find on our platform. Thank you and bye-bye.